0: Well, this is the final episode of the first season of Constitutional Café, which is brought to you by the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies at Melbourne Law School, together with the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law. I'm Adrian Stone, and it's my turn to host a conversation. This episode is on a topic very close to my heart, academic freedom. It is an idea that is at the heart of the work that we all do as scholars, and it is a principle that is increasingly under attack some of the most vivid examples arise in authoritarian regimes. But even where democracy is thriving comparatively well, there are problems. My interest in this episode is in the constitutional dimensions of the problems. In some places, academic freedom is little more than a political principle treasured by academics, but not widely known or understood. In other systems, as in the United States, for example, the protection for academic freedom is found within the constitutional protection of freedom of speech. In other places still, it is cobbled together from a set of related rights. But there are constitutional systems under which academic freedom receives specific protection in the Constitution, and has been the subject of much judicial attention. One prominent instance is the protection of art and science and teaching found in the German basic law. I'm really pleased then that our first guest in this episode is an expert in academic freedom under the German basic law, she is Professor doctor Anne Ann-Katrin Kaufhold, the Chair of Constitutional Administrative Law at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. And she joins us from Berlin. Well, welcome to Constitutional cafe Anne Ann-Katrin. It's wonderful to have you here.
1: Hello, Adrian, and good morning from Berlin. It's wonderful to be in the Constitutional Café.
0: It's a real pleasure to talk to you because uh, when you visited uh, my centre last year, just before COVID, we discussed many things, but we never quite got around to this topic. And I knew that you had great expertise in academic freedom, so I'm pleased we have the opportunity. So I wonder if you could tell us about Article 5, Paragraph 3 of the Basic Law, what it says, and in in general terms, what it's meant.
1: Sure. Um, I'm very happy to do that. Article 5, Paragraph 3 is a specific guarantee of what we call the freedom of sciences. I quote the article, it says, arts and sciences, research and teaching shall be free. And the second sentence, and the freedom of teaching shall not release any person from allegiance to the constitution. And the freedom of sciences in the sense of article five of all constitution is a um, First of all, an individual right to freedom, and it protects all scientists against any kind of state intervention in the process of researching or teaching. And according to the Federal Constitutional Court um, and its leading decision, uh, the freedom of sciences protect any activity which, according to its content and form, is to be regarded as a serious and planned attempt to ascertain the truth. So academic freedom covers not only certain specific um, scientific opinions or scientific theories, rather it's also and especially protects minority um, opinions and rather unusual methods. And it is also generally accepted that science and the concept of science and thereby the, the content of the guarantee of academic freedom can change and does change over time and therefore an important indication of that for that activity has to be regarded as scientific research or teaching is its recognition by the scientific community. So first of all academic freedom in the sense of the German constitution is an individual right but it's not only that it has a second what we call dimension a second connotation and that's an institutional or organizational dimension. The freedom of sciences, as uh, the German constitution puts it, also obliges the state to provide the resources that are necessary so that scientific research and teaching can be done. Um, the state must safeguard academic freedom within the university, and it must provide the resources that are necessary to do that. So. That was decided by the Constitutional Court in the 1970s, when um, in Germany university reforms were on their way. In the wave of following the 1968 movement, Um, the universities and their members were striving for a democratization of the universities and the Constitutional Court said um, Article 5 paragraph 3 obliges the state to organize universities in a way so that academic freedom and free research and teaching is possible and ever since every university reform is has is measured and has been measured against article 5 so it has this double uh, double effect individual and organizational
0: that's really interesting to know so there is a sense in which um the uh Uh, this provision of Article 5 has what I think of as sort of like a positive aspect to it, requiring action on behalf of the German state. Can you give me an instance of the kind of support that you think the German state maybe provides for universities that it perhaps was required to do so under Article 5, Paragraph
1: 3? So probably the most important part is the fact that all universities are in Germany, not all of them, but the vast majority of uh, universities in Germany is financed by the state. And um, from my understanding of Article 5, Paragraph 3, the state, it would not be allowed for the state to refrain from financing um, public universities. It, it has to guarantee, It's you, you can't name a number and say it has to provide for... Uh, 20, 30, 40 universities. That's not the point, but it has to provide for a certain number of um, research and teaching institutions and it has to find and it has to publicly finance it. And when organizing universities, it's important to see that um, the within the, the organizational structures have to take care of, of by by designing the internal organization, the state has to take care of academic freedom. For example, it would not be allowed to have some external manager um, decide about uh, who is going to be appointed and who is not going to be appointed as a professor at university. It's the university members themselves who are doing that, and that is constitutionally protected. You would not be able to change that without changing the constitution.
0: So your day-to-day life as a German professor then is very much affected by this a provision. It sounds like it, it contains a fairly strong guarantee of academic self-governance over certain issues. Yes,
1: it does and um, almost any topic that is discussed within the university relating to the university and its organisation itself um, would at one point or another relate to academic freedom, be it teaching evaluation, be it funding, external funding of research, be it um, appointing new new members of the university. So it's all um, all in discussions about these these topics, at one sooner or later someone would
0: refer to academic freedom. So there's a strong consciousness in the German Academy of the personal and institutional protections for academic freedom that come from Article five. Absolutely. Absolutely that's, that's correct. Yes. But- the second thing that you said to me, which is really interesting, is that the content of academic freedom, what it what it covers and protects, changes over time. But that the meaning of academic freedom is understood to be, as I think I heard you say, something for the disciplines themselves. Can you say a little bit more? Did I get that right? And can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, yes, you, you absolutely did that completely right. Um, the, the main concept of what academic freedom or freedom of sciences and sciences in that sense is this search for the truth, but what is the truth and what is searching, what does searching for the truth mean? Who is to decide um, about what is searching for the truth and searching for something else? Who can decide that in the courts um, are very skeptical that they are the ones of the constitutional courts, are very skeptical that it is the one to decide what is considered to be science and where is where the science and academic teaching and publication of research uh, results turn into mere, um, in parentheses, opinion. So it refers the decision about what is science and what is not back to the scientific community. That's the main indication. It's not the only one, but it's the main indicator saying that if the scientific community um, if some, someone or a project is, is um, seen as a scientific project within the scientific community, that would be
0: science within, um,
1: as, as referred to in article 5.
0: That's really interesting. And science is not just understood as the physical sciences. It covers the arts, the humanities uh, and other disciplines in that way. Is that how you use scientific? Absolutely, absolutely. Wide interpretation. So this is all very interesting, and I'm really intrigued by the second sentence of Article <laughs> 5, Paragraph 3, 3, which I understand says in English, freedom of teaching does not absolve from loyalty to the Constitution. Can you explain how and why that came about and what it means?
1: Yeah, it, it is really a, a, um, um, it's, it's a little surprise that Article 5, Paragraph 3 uh, has for, in, in, for us um the the lo- so-called loyalty clause it goes back to the experience during the uh, Weimar Republic when university professors used their classes their courses to agitate against the state and um so this is um uh, the, the the main uh aim of the of the of the sentences to um protect university and to, to prevent that university is used as uh, is used for political campaigning. Um, it, the sentence runs empty insofar as pure political propaganda will in most cases not qualify as academic teaching. So saying that you must not um, refrain from the Constitution or you're obliged to, to loyalty to the Constitution when you're doing scientific teaching runs empty because if you're not doing it, you're not scientifically teaching. However, it still has a meaning in so far as it obliges professors to a minimum level of agreement with the constitution. Is that does of course not mean that you cannot criticize the constitution? That you're um, it is forbidden um, to to develop alternatives to the constitution, but aggressive agitation against very basic constitutional principles such as the principle um, of democracy or the rule of law uh, is inadmissible and would not be protected as um,
0: scientific teaching. So that discussion brings me really to what I think will be the last point that I will have time to talk about one of the things that has led me to do this podcast is the challenges to academic freedom that you're seeing, we are all seeing worldwide, especially in circumstances of democratic decay or backsliding. And it seems like all over the world, in, in my country and in much more seriously in others, um, academic freedom is under threat. So I was wondering if you could comment on uh, the challenges that academic freedom might face in Germany today and also how significant you think Article 5 is in addressing them.
1: Well, maybe I could name two um, challenges that are very prominent in discussions about academic freedom right now. Number one is an evergreen; it's the university reforms. Quite a few states are trying to introduce what you could call a some type of managerial university, um, which is in which uh, researchers of uh, researchers are obliged to orient towards what companies think is useful or what society thinks is useful as a scientific result. And critics would argue that these reforms um, are violating academic freedom. And in discussing the change uh, of the university landscape, um, as, as I pointed out earlier, they're always referring to academic freedom. And second challenge is the rather... Um, um, that I can identify right now is a rather new challenge and it's the challenge to balance academic freedom against uh, personality rights of people um, that are protected by what some might call the laws of political correctness or cancel culture. There's um, a debate which is, I think, just beginning at the moment in Germany um, about um, your protection of personality rights or As others call it, uh, cancel culture, uh, concerns about speaking bang, speaking ban, sorry, um, going around. And just very recently, just a a week ago, a new network for academic freedom has been founded, um, trying to uh, fight for academic freedom in the classroom and in university in general. And um, the debate about what is necessary to protect personality rights, what is legitimate and where, um, where academic freedom stars is just beginning right now. And I think we will be, just in other parts of society, we will be um, concerned with this challenge for the next few years.
0: So Anne-Katrin, we always ask our guests for a recommendation for listeners to read something further. And I know that this is particularly problematic in your case because the The relevant materials are in uh, German. But uh, you and I are going to put our heads together after the podcast and see if we can find uh, some material. So I'm going to say to the listeners, please look out on our website. You will find something uh, that we'll put together um, on the basis of anne Katrin's recommendations. So thank you very much uh, for joining us here And I will be keeping an eye on academic freedom in Germany and maybe call you up again and pick your brains again over another virtual cup of coffee.
1: Thank you very much, Edwin. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: After speaking with Anne-Katrin, I wanted to get a very different perspective on academic freedom. And for that, I've turned to Renata Uwitz, who is a noted expert in many aspects of human rights law a professor at the Central European University and currently a distinguished visiting professor at University College London. Renata is working on academic freedom at the supranational level under the European Charter of Human Rights. Her work is producing fascinating insights into the challenges for bringing academic freedom within that framework. But you'll see from our conversation that she also has personal experiences that are sobering and that bring these questions into sharp relief. She joined us from London. Renata, welcome to Constitutional Café.
2: Adrienne, thank you so much for including me in the conversation.
0: Well, I couldn't have possibly done a podcast on this topic without uh, talking to you about it um, because you've done so much interesting work, but also you've had really interesting experiences. So I wanted to ask you to say a little about the threats to academic freedom as you perceive them. And you may wish in the course of talking about that to discuss the specific experiences you've had at your own institution, the Central European University, but I'd also be interested in your view on the broader landscape for academic freedom.
2: So let's start with CEU because uh, that's a personal story and it started really quiet out of the blue when the hungarian government decided to include two additional terms for as conditions of operation for foreign private universities in hungary uh, one requirement was that these foreign accredited universities should have a campus in their accredited country accrediting country and the other was an international agreement between the foreign country and the hungarian government Uh, regarding that particular institution. It was very widely recognized that these new conditions on the continuing operation of private universities violated academic freedom. Uh, There was plenty of international support from individuals and institutions. Uh, the, The whole process of how this law was passed without consultation, meaningful consultation with higher education institutions very rapidly was widely covered in the international press. But then it became very clear that despite all the claims that academic freedom in the European Union was at risk, it turned out that this was not really a claim you could make very robustly in court, especially in terms of human rights. led us to to understand that although the European Court of Human Rights has recognized the human right to academic freedom in its case law uh, in the years before the CEU case uh, started, there was very little in in practice uh, that could be mobilized for legal protection on a supranational level uh, against such measures in October last year, when the Court of Justice of the European Union offered protection and found a violation of academic freedom under the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, academic freedom was not the first or the leading argument that led the court to find a violation. Uh, Rather, it protected the freedom of market participants that is, people who wish to establish a private university, uh, from such rules that hinder their their participation and and, and willingness to to act in, in, in the market, which shows on the one hand that the Court of Justice is willing to develop the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights further, But it also shows shows that whatever we have in European human rights case law is not quite there yet when governments impose conditions on the operations of universities that in exchange interfere with uh, or thwart the academic freedom of individual faculty members. So that's the CEU story.
0: Can I say, so this must be a very searing experience to see this occur in your own university. What do you see if you look beyond the Central European University story to the rest of Europe and the world?
2: Well, when we talk about violations of of academic freedom or or scholars at risk, very often uh, international organisations and NGOs cover physical attacks uh, on on individual scholars, firing uh, and, and particular criminal prosecutions against them for discussing their work in public. This is what scholars at risk concentrates on. uh, And this is also uh, the most broadly covered violation of academic freedom when you look at what human rights watch regularly reports on. Now, what we see in several emerging illiberal and authoritarian settings, from Turkey to Russia to, to Hungary, to, to Brazil to Poland, uh, are regulations on the individual on, on the institutional environment of universities, changing terms of accreditation, changing terms of employment. But of course, if you look more broadly, then you find that as a comprehensive study of of the European University Association, showed that in a number of European countries, government spending on public universities today still is not reaching pre-austerity levels as of 2008. So funding cuts certainly affect how universities prioritize not only teaching, but also research and the institutional conditions of freedom. Uh, Now, universities, which which are made reliant on external funding, whether corporate funding or or foreign students, see all around the world uh, enormous pressure to teach in a manner that students from non-democracies find acceptable. Freedom House, in a recent report, revealed a tendency of very strong self-censorship in in UK universities, pointing to what they call an internalization and transnationalization of censorship in Western democracies, in in Western universities. And what you see more and more intensely in, in the UK uh, but also more, more broadly internationally, that there are empirical studies which are suggesting that conservative academics feel side, sidelined, especially in the social sciences. And in a recent paper by Pippa Norris, uh, 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 there is a big survey of, of political studies professors who feel sidelined for expressing contr- uh, controversial, or oh, sorry, con- conservative views in academic circles. Uh, this is prompting recommendations to create in the name of vi- diversity, such academic environments uh, that equalize the, play- the playing field uh, between, cons- between minority views and and the majority liberal view. Now, what the Pippa study also suggests that the sense of being sidelined in academic discourse is not simply a left, right, conservative, liberal issue. So in, academy, in, in uh, settings where the conservative view is the majority view in politics, It's scholars on the liberal side or the left side who feel underrepresented, sidelined and persecuted. But external measures seeking to to equalize the views in academia certainly impair the freedom of scholars to pursue particular lines of research that they would otherwise choose and also to, to publish on these subjects. So this is more the the global picture to which the CEU story perfectly fits.
0: So I take it you're quite concerned about the global picture for universities and increasing threats both from within the universities and from governments to academic freedom. Have I understood you correctly? Oh, absolutely. And, and the reason why,
2: why I'm concerned is that while the human rights framework can easily capture physical attacks and viewpoint-based uh, silencing and censorship uh, using the freedom of expression framework, uh, where currently the human rights framework falls short, is capturing the chilling effect of regulations that apply to the institutional environment where scholarship is being produced. If you take CEU, the Hungarian government never enforced these rules against the university. The university simply decided to move to another country. Now, not every university can afford to move from one country to another, but more importantly, in human rights terms, since there was no direct government action targeting the university, there are no domestic remedies to exhaust, and therefore you have limited opportunities to challenge uh, the impact of these measures on this particular subject of the law uh, in, in the first place. So it shows you how, in addition to the thin normative foundations of of academic freedom as a human right, you have serious procedural access barriers such as potentially a lack of standing or victim status to challenge the impact of of legal rules which otherwise clearly forced you to alter your your course of conduct.
0: So let me jump in there because you've invoked the human rights framework and this brings me to your terrific uh, paper that you're working on now in which you trace the case law in the European Court of Human Rights that touches on academic freedom and you do it this in a very interesting way could you just tell us the key points that emerge from your discussion of the case law in that paper
2: well as i mentioned before the European Court of Human Rights in several cases recognized academic freedom as a human right this was definitely uh, going beyond the text of the Convention. The text of European Convention does not mention academic freedom. And in the context where the, where the court recognized the rights, uh, you usually had scholars who discussed their research in public, in the media, uh, and faced adverse, adverse consequences as a result of that. So early on in one of the leading cases in 2014, Concurring justices said that this is fine and well, but the court uh, will definitely not be able to move beyond the free speech dimensions because the normative foundations of academic freedom as a legal concept are yet to be developed. This was echoed also by the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Speech uh, last year. So the court is do- the the European Court of Human Rights is doing very well with the extramural speech dimension of the right. Uh, it is also doing reasonably well when someone is uh, is discontinued in their academic employment, whether fired or just the contract is not being renewed. is a is a is a technicality on account of a speech they made in public, contributing to the general public debate. On a matter of, of public concern, but beyond this, the, the case law uh, of the court offers limited uh, limited protection, uh, in particular in institutional settings. So, the extramural dimension of the speech. We have a very disturbing case uh, where cameras were in, installed in a university classroom illegally. The Court found in favor of the applicants because the installment of the cameras was not legal under the national law. But the justices in a, in a very split section could not really agree on what the normative basis of affording protection to, to, the, to the professor in the classroom was. So at the moment, the court protects access to data. So that's an important dimension of protecting freedom of academic research. But we don't see protection uh, for choosing research topics. And we don't see protections, protection beyond the data access dimension either. And we see very limited protection uh, against the chilling effect of institutional regulations and especially redistribution of resources in the higher education sector.
0: So that's really interesting what you say. It seems that some academic activity, which most closely resembles freedom of expression activity, is getting fairly well protected under this human rights framework, but that the human rights framework is unable to even sort of see the other kind of problem that occurs when there are factors of institutional regulation that are undermining academic freedom i think that that's a, a the point that i see coming out very clearly from your paper and i wonder what it says to you about how we should think about academic freedom do is it a human right that individuals hold or do you think that ha- has institutional dimensions well
2: in in the european setting what I argue for is definitely recognizing academic freedom as an individual right. So not as an institutional right, but rather as an individual right, but recognizing it in terms that are distinct from freedom of expression. The dimensions that are, that are protected by, by freedom of, of, of speech relate to extramural expression of ideas, but at the moment they do not protect the core of academic freedom that is free critical inquiry, that is the very set of activities uh, that produce the content that is then protected as speech. So where work needs to be done, and this is where the human rights framework could be helpful, is pinning down the moral value uh, that is deeply human that stands behind those expressions that are now protected. And what I call free critical inquiry is what you call open minds in in your book. Uh, And I believe that unpacking those dimensions of academic freedom that are contributing to, but not equivalent with freedom of expression is the important conceptual work. This is the work that will be able to distinguish the employment claims and the free speech claims from the genuine academic freedoms claims. And this is also the work that will be able to to explain how, how this free critical inquiry does depend on an enabling institutional framework. The enabling institutional framework at the moment is very often used as a pretext for limiting the freedom. So the moral, the moral core of the right should help us to, to work out the distance the state needs to keep uh, when it funds and regulates the institutional framework in order to let free critical inquiry continue. This is what Judith Butler describes as a three-way compact. And I think we can borrow from free speech jurisprudence in explaining the contributions academics make to functioning democracies and diverse societies functioning as democracies. But I also believe that the free speech framework doesn't cover the entire story of academic freedom, because it doesn't cover the methods of, of testing arguments. Uh, and justifying truth claims that are unique to the academic environment, Uh, nor does it cover the collective dimension of how this method works. Uh, It's not an individual professor who debates in their head, but rather it's it's an entire community of scholars, from professors to students, Uh, where, where such debates happen and the arguments which then make it out to the public square are developed over time.
0: Renata, one feature of your paper I really liked was your description of academic freedom as a rebel right. I wonder if you could tell me what you mean by that and what are the other rebel rights in the canon of rights?
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That was, that was actually the, the, the bit of the argument that was the most exciting part to work on, because we are so used to, to saying that academia is about the production of knowledge. And yeah, we are just critical minds. But I, I do believe that uh, what very often gets lost in the conversation is that critical inquiry is an uncomfortable place to be. And this is a place where we are very often testing the limits of the status quo, uh, both the status quo in the world and also the status quo of, of, of academic inquiry. This is what Jonathan Cole, in a, in a wonderful essay, uh, recognizes when he says that a research university is by design an unsettling environment. So when we mean that we protect free critical inquiry, free is freedom from state interference, and critical meaning are questioning the status quo and asking all the hard questions. So in this sense, academic freedom is in the family of freedom of expression and also freedom of assembly. And this is the dimension that we have to be most mindful of against any attempt that is trying to tone down sharp criticism and being exposed to uncomfortable views in the university environment. I believe that the rebel right nature of academic freedom captures this dimension well, that criticism is not just intellectual criticism that we enjoy, but also intellectual criticism that we sit uncomfortably with in the search for the truth, wherever that may lead. So in this sense, academic freedom is about protecting a process and not a particular contribution to to the public debate, which is, I believe, absolutely capable of being captured
0: in, in the human rights framework. Renata Uwitz, it's been such an illuminating conversation. I do have to let you go and I look forward to another opportunity perhaps in the future for us to talk.
2: Uh, thank you, Adrian. It was great fun.
0: Both these conversations bring home vividly the close relationship between academic freedom and liberal democratic constitutionalism. Academic freedom is part of an open society, and it's not surprising that where democracy is under attack, so is academic freedom. For a third perspective on these questions, I turn to Leora Lazarus, who is the final guest in this episode. Leora is Professor of Law at the Peter A. Allard School at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. But before joining UBC, she had a 20-year career at the University of Oxford, where she was also Head of Research at the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights. I wanted to speak with Leora for this program ever since I read a recent article of hers which considers this problem from a very fresh angle. How should constitutional scholars understand their role in all of this? What does academic freedom require of scholars generally? And as scholars of constitutional law in particular? Leora joined me for a conversation from Vancouver. So Leora, Lazarus, thank you so much for joining us here at Constitutional Café. It's wonderful to have an opportunity to speak uh, with you. I have to say I really enjoyed your paper, which I think is getting a lot of attention in the Federal Law Review, uh, Constitutional uh, Scholars as Constitutional Actors, uh, which advances the idea that constitutional scholars have a special role in the protection of democracy. Could you tell us something about that article, how you came to write it, and what its main lines of argument are?
3: Well, thanks very much for um, having me on on the Constitutional Paper. I'm quite excited about this conversation. Um, yeah, so I um, I wrote this paper originally by invitation from uh, Gabrielle Appleby and um, Vanessa McDonnell, who were writing a... a Federal Law Review, Special Edition, the Pervasive Constitution. And so I came, and I think this this context is quite important, because I came to this paper thinking about um, the idea of constitutional institutions beyond the traditional idea of parliaments and courts and executives. So that was the first sort of like prompt for this, although this is obviously a question I've been thinking for a very long time. Um, And the paper starts out with a sort of question which is really why, given the outsized role of constitutional scholars in shaping so many constitutions, like Dicey of the UK constitutional tradition, why do we not have a general conception of constitutional scholars as constitutional actors? Um, And then the paper moves on to make a proposition, um, namely that we can think of constitutional scholars analogously to something that we term in the literature in the constitutional literature as integrity institutions. And I drew on Paul Kilday's idea of integrity institutions as institutions that are facilitative of democratic, um, of democracy. Um, so two claims are made, drawing on a whole lot of different um, scholarship and, and even legal statements around academics. Um, contributions, and really they they looked at the two things that I made. One was that academics, uh, constitutional scholars, contribute to what we call well-functioning constitutionalism in the sense that they play an accountability role in critiquing and engaging with official assertions regarding constitutional law, uh, and they facilitate robust democratic and constitutional debate. They also play a constitutive role in the sense that they're their expert advice and pervasive influence shapes the constitution. Um, And then I moved on from that proposition to explore the normative implications of what I meant by this. Um, And there are two sets of implications, broadly speaking, and we'll obviously come back and talk a little bit more about this. But the first is, first relates to the protections of academic freedom and integrity. And I argue that this, The idea of constitutional scholars as constitutional kind of integrity institutions underpins and reinforces it, um, the value of academic freedom and integrity. And then the second relates to what I call the obligations of constitutional scholarship, which is slightly more controversial actually. Um, And that's the idea of academic self-awareness and a commitment to decisional and institutional independence. So that's the sort of outline of the paper, and I'm obviously happy to talk about it more. But I guess in terms of the argument, the argument is sort of better understood if you think about it as a response to a personal experience of what I went through with Brexit.
0: Um, so Please tell us a little bit about uh, the uh, what you went through with Brexit, so the crucial context here being at that time you were uh, teaching and researching at Oxford, right?
3: That's right. Well, I mean, I was, uh, I thought I was a human rights lawyer, constitutional lawyer at Oxford in 19, in 2000, so I'd been there for a very long time. Um, and as the process of contestation around the European Convention of Human Rights was always part of our environment, um, sort of opposition to it. But as Brexit happened, that process sort of ramped itself up to very, very high levels. And what I saw around me was a sort of acute hyper-politicisation of the constitutional discipline um, and and polarisation. And it just escalated. Um, It escalated in the sense that, you know, academics were vilified or discredited or glorified, depending on whether they served a particular political goal on the one hand. And then the other part that I found quite sort of profound was that they that, 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 that became part of the political conflict in ways that I hadn't quite seen before. Um, and that's not that I'm unfamiliar with political conflicts. I mean, I come from South Africa and, you know, constitutional scholars played huge roles in, in, in those times. So it's not that I'm unfamiliar with. There was a particular way in which the academic, the academy, the constitutional academy was drawn into political conflicts, around issues like parliamentary prorogation, around parliamentary process. It became quite a technical constitutional debate about what was possible what was not possible around the process of rolling out Brexit. Um, And so I I think this sort of heightened for me something that I was trying to sort of reflecting on the way in which the academy, or the constitutional academy sort of sits in relation to these political debates. And then it became clear to me, having looked at it, that it was a global phenomenon, increasingly a global phenomenon, where populist discourse tends to have a particular, you know, it, it, it has lots of um, enemies, but the woke liberal academy is one of those enemies, right? And this became the sort of discourse as well. So I think the context of that was as a personal kind of concerned with somehow with with where we were all sitting in relation to how Brexit was playing out.
0: So you're in Oxford and you're in this very turbulent time and also very constitutionally creative time in terms of constitutional scholarship, and you're observing your colleagues in the broader academy really almost, as I hear you saying, almost some of them joining warring political factions. Um, And so the constitutional... Uh, the, the discourse of constitutional scholarship became highly conflictual and politicized in a way that you hadn't seen before. So, do I take it then that this article is kind of a call for a collective reorientation of the academy to a joint purpose and a joint purpose of, I think, protecting democracy? Is that have I understood that right? Is that a fair characterization?
3: I mean, I. I take quite a bit of time in the paper to, to to try and explain the importance of what the academy as a whole and the constitutional academy plays to the fabric of democracy. And I draw on, you know, I draw on a variety of people. I wasn't the first person to say this by any means, and, you, you know, you said it in your work, and, you know, there's there's lots of, you know, Michael Ignatius is saying that, Vicky Jackson at Harvard has been saying it, um, you know, the idea of knowledge institutions has become quite common in the sort of discussion around the fabric of democracy. And I, I like Ignatiev's language of the sort of counter-majoritarian fabric, that robust institutions, academic institutions, play their, this role. But the constitutional scholars are in this very particular role when it comes to constitutional conflicts, because of course they may be, be in a specific position of conflict with those in power in ways that are slightly different to, you know, people who might be studying some historical element or some other discipline, right? So constitutional scholars proclaim or or state constitutional principles, which may come in conflict with with the people who are kind of garnering power. So I think that's where I was, what I was, the turn I was trying to make from the general question of the contribution of knowledge to the, to democracy as a whole, to this idea that we have to have a free, independent constitutional academy which is allowed to contest these questions without necessarily being attacked by state actors, or on the other hand, and this is the really contentious part, um, being gamed for political power. And this was the part that really where I was quite disturbed in the Brexit context. So one response
0: that you might have to hearing this argument is, look, hold on, that polarisation, that contestation that you talk about, whether it's about Brexit or something else, that's part of what it means to be an academic. And that's what we actually expect of the academy. And that's the way that the academy produces knowledge. Mm -hmm. So a call for a joint purpose sits a little bit oddly with the idea that we're allowed to disagree and, in fact, disagreement is core to the advancement of knowledge. So I think that But I, when you made that last comment, I think you take some forms of contestation and disagreement to be productive, intellectually productive, and some to be not intellectually productive, and I wonder how you draw that distinction. So I don't know
3: that, um, I don't know that my benchmark is whether it's intellectually productive I think my benchmark is that I'm absolutely, I'm excited by the challenge of intellectual contestation in a condition where I believe we're all acting in some kind of level of good faith. So um, good faith disagreement that allows a plurality and a diversity of claims I think is a very important premise of academic and intellectual dialogue. When I talk about hyper-politicisation, polarisation, I mean something different to that. Um, I mean something different to the idea that we would disagree. And I don't only mean that we might, I mean, I might have a tantrum of disagree with you and walk out and, you know, we can know that that's a hot academic debate, right? That's a a different thing to the idea that there is, um, I, I suppose the best way I placed it in the article was, doing honour to your opponent's arguments, right? instead of Instead of discrediting them in particular ways, but doing honour to them, giving the best possible rendering of your opposing arguments is one of the ways of thinking through that academic contestation. So it isn't that I, ha- I wish to kind of censor people's viewpoints. I think the, the conditions in which we engage are actually kind of important now. Um, and I also think that the... the Core principle of independence has to sort of underpin all of that engagement, right? So, where academic or constitutional scholarship, what I mean by gaming, and is I think we just have to be realistic is that think tanks have played a massive role in drawing on the academy in in building a particular agenda. And I think that those that we don't have enough engagement with that particular part of this democratic engagement. So without, without naming specific people, I'm trying to say that there is a, there's a concern in which some of, some of the scholarship that was being developed or positions that were being taken were not entirely independent of certain political agents. And that was why at the end of this piece, I talk about the duty of decisional um, independence and the idea of of how those obligations actually are part of being constitutional actors. So the idea of having authority as a constitutional expert, let's say, comes with a level of obligation with respect to independence. That's not to say you have to be apolitical. I think the distinction between being political and independent needs to be held. It's a fine distinction, but it's an important one. I don't think it's possible to be apolitical in constitutional scholarship. But I do think that there is there is a different there's about a level of self-reflection and academic self-awareness that has to happen when we think about whether we are independent actors in so the constitution
0: so my last question then is are constitutional scholars any different it strikes me the dynamics that you talk about could easily occur in all disciplines and that brexit may have been a moment where constitutional scholars were particularly in the frame for that kind of gaming that kind of manipulation by political actors for their own ends in which constitutional scholars may have been willingly or unwittingly uh, complicit. But surely that would occur in all kinds of disciplines at various times. It strikes me that the science of epidemiology might be exactly the one that might be facing some of those challenges now. So I wonder if this is really an an article, or whether there's an article or a book that you could write for us called Scholars as Constitutional Actors, rather than
3: constitutional scholars as constitutional actors. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's on a gradient, but I think there's something distinctive about constitutional scholars, and it's this. So, scholarship often plays, and this is where I think I've built on the idea of knowledge institutions, which are open to any academic interest. The scholars who are central to the building of policy are one thing, but scholars who are central to the building of the parameters in which that policy is designed, to the meta framework is a slightly different thing. And so there are two reasons. why. Well, firstly, that's at the level of their influence. So at the level of legitimation of a particular choice, of political choice. But secondly, it's at the level of risk that they may be experiencing in being critical or standing outside of a particular constitutional consensus. So that so, so I think it's true that there is a book written about scholars and constitutional actors, but I think that, and, and also to say that I think constitutional scholars is a wide concept. I'm not only talking about law schools, or might be talking about government scholars or political theorists or historians of the constitution. That's not, I'm not trying to be kind of exclusive about what that term includes, but I do think that when specific constitutional scholars make statements of constitutional principles they are making statements about the meta framework within which that policy operates and so their legitimate their their capacity to legitimate authoritatively or their capacity to be in the line of fire is it's slightly more pronounced. That's exceptionally helpful thank you so
0: much um, I want to end our lovely conversation by asking you something that we always ask guests on Constitutional Cafe, which is for the reader who would like to read something more, what would you recommend? We will, of course, um, make available um, the information about your uh, wonderful paper on our website. But is there something that was particularly helpful or influential to you as you read it, something else that you're writing now? What would you tell our readers about?
3: I would, I mean, apart from reading your book, Adrian, on um, Open Minds with Carolyn Evans, I would, I would recommend thinking and going back to basics, and I would actually suggest reading Max Weber's essay on on the idea of academic uh, vocation. Um, it's cited in my own work, but it is, I think, um, and if you're struggling with that, I'd move on to Peter Ghosh's work um, on Max Weber. But I think it's helpful to look at how these historical discussions replicate and move through. Sometimes it's helpful to hear the sort of quietness around their writing, um, instead of that you can hear that Weber's writing without a Twitter feed behind him. Um, and so I just I, I would go back to those sort of basic principles and think a little bit more about why they were writing like that. Not necessarily to agree with them, but to think a bit about the sort of origins of the fight for academic freedom.
0: Well, Leora Lazarus, thank you so much. It's been a treat having you here today.
3: Thank you. That's, that's, uh, it was a pleasure to be here.
0: From this wide-ranging set of conversations, a couple of points emerge very strongly. One is that this is a time of peril for academic freedom. The peril is especially clear in places where democracy itself is imperiled, as Renata Uitz makes clear. But it's also true where democracy is in comparatively good shape. And Katrin Kalthold's discussion of the twin dangers posed by governmental managerialism on the one hand, and the rise of the controversies associated with cancel culture on the other, rang very true to me. In many places, it seems, there's an increased polarization in politics in which universities might be the victim. What follows from this is that academic freedom has constitutional dimensions, whether or not the text of a given constitutional document or the decisions of a constitutional court recognise it as such. It is part of the infrastructure of a liberal, democratic, constitutional order. It therefore deserves the kind of attention given to it by these scholars. I hope that some of you might be inspired by these conversations to give this some further thought even if it's not your research interest. It does provide a foundation for everything that we do. All of our guests have given us recommendations, which you can find at our website, constitutionalcafe.org, or you can find them through our partner, the blog of the International Association of Constitutional Law at blog-iacl-aidc.org. Just follow the links to Constitutional Cafe. And I'll hope you'll forgive me for sneaking in a reference to my own recent book on this topic, Open Minds, which I co-authored with Carolyn Evans. This brings us to the end of the first season of Constitutional Cafe. We are especially grateful to the Australian Research Council for its support through the Laureate Program in Comparative Constitutional Law at Melbourne Law School and to our producers at Podcast Services. Please look out for our next season. We hope you can join us for another conversation soon.